Amen. All right, so Mark 4 is our text this morning. By God's grace, we have a very small chunk of Scripture to look at um, together today in Mark 4, beginning in verse 35. It was for you either the best or the worst day growing up. Depending on your personality, show and tell went one of two ways. It was either the day that you had been waiting for for months, packaging your idea and ready to deliver the presentation that those first graders had been waiting for. Or, for some of you, it was the day that you crammed starting first thing in the morning, begging your parents, help me put together some idea that can satisfy these course requirements. And you go and you show them as well as tell them your latest idea. Well, at this point in the Gospel of Mark, we have Jesus running on these same two tracks. He has primarily been in the last chapter, chapter and a half, in tell mode describing the kingdom and what it looks like when his kingdom breaks into the world. He's announced the kingdom and told specifically in the last few weeks these parables, these short, succinct stories that are meant to capture an essential thread of what it means for him to rule and reign on earth as it is in heaven. And now, the story shifts in Mark's gospel to Jesus going into show mode. He's been telling, and now he shows, beginning in verse 35. And on that day, when the evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, And the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea and said, Peace. Be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? That final question of the disciples This scene, this showing of Christ takes place, really serves for us as the main question, not only of this little story, but of the entire gospel of Mark. Their question, who is he? Who is this? This is the question that everyone has been trying to figure out. God's kingdom is being unleashed, and things things are happening all around that are hard to explain. 
Demons are being cast out. The sick are being healed. This kingdom teacher is drawing a lot of attention. He's gathering followers, and a lot of people are ticked off. They don't, they don't like this. Specifically, the disciples in the text seem to not get it. And they ask, who, who is this? Their question forms the overarching thesis of this passage, and it's also their question and their posture is meant to hold up a mirror for us to our souls. Notice how Jesus ends this scene. It's a very simple story, one that requires little explanation, but notice the question that Jesus asks in verse 40. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The end of what is a high watermark in Jesus' demonstration of his deity. Jesus doesn't end doing what I would do, standing back and flexing, right? Standing in awe of the miracle. Did you just see that? But rather, he spins the question to the disciples and contrasts what he has just done with their lack of faith and, in fact, their fear. This miracle, this story, is almost seen as a package, a gift given to the disciples to call out their lack of faith and their understanding of who God is. And these two themes serve as an easy connector to our culture. Idea one, a lack of clarity about who Jesus is. Who is this that everything seems to obey him? And idea number two, a fear in the face of life's uncertainties. These are easy connectors to our modern culture where we see around us an overwhelming misunderstanding or poor understanding of who Jesus is and connected to that, almost in a one-to-one relationship, an overwhelming sense of fear in the face of life's uncertainties. Let's consider that second idea as we look at the text this morning. Fear would be for us an expected result of the fall, right? Bad things do happen. Life is out of whack and out of source. The world itself yearns and groans. It is broken. Bad things do happen, and as a result, fear would be an expected emotion for fallen humanity. And on the other hand, though, we are pretty good at piling fear upon ourselves. I want you to consider your life, like just backtrack over the last week or two. This is one area where it seems that while modern culture has advanced, particularly in our technological savvy, that advancement has been matched by an increasing growth in things that would cause us fear. I mean, let something happen in a remote part of the world today. 50 years ago, you're not going to know. And now that drops into your room at 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock every night. And with the advent of technology, you don't even have to wait to the nightly news anymore, right? 
I mean, it used to be only a decade ago that you had to wait to sit down with your family to see the daily dose of terrible things that were coming. Now your phone alerts you with a steady stream of the latest murder suspect, the latest craziness that has happened. And if you want to fan yourself into a panic, just get on the blogs, right? Try social media out for a take, and you will see every theory imaginable about how the world is going to end in the next 17 seconds. Or take, for me, uh, the latest weird pain that you feel in your body, right? It used to be that you just didn't know, right? Or you just died. One of those two, right? You just didn't know or you just died. Now what happens? The latest twinge and you can WebMD yourself literally to death, right? If you have never tried that, don't, all right? It unlocks a never-ending stream of the little ache in your big toe that is clearly going to lead to your death by next Sunday if you do not take these 18 steps. And what happens in our hearts, these minor things seemingly, and some quite large, that begin to pile on themselves, build up ahead of steam, and before you know it, we are panic-stricken. It's not very likely that we are going to end up today in a storm, in a boat, trying to figure out if we're going to make it back to land alive. But we will invariably find ourselves in storms of all kinds and of all choosing. And what we do in the face of these fears reveals much about what we believe about Jesus, or more specifically, who we believe Jesus to be. Is he a God who is sovereignly in charge of all things, or are our fears God's? Ed Welch warns that one of the ways that fear can drive your life is that it can turn you into a false prophet. You've done this as well, right? Fear, in many ways, is vision without faith. It's being able to see into the future, and as a result of my seeing into the future and my lack of faith, what do I do? Well, I'm going to die. Sure's the world. Think about the last conversation you've had with your spouse about something that was seemingly out of whack. Does your conversation bend towards faith, or does it bend towards fear? Well, you know everything's just going to go crazy. I don't want to go see your crazy uncle at Easter. It's just going to be bad, right? We're so quick to become false prophets ourselves, and we need, therefore, this word from God this morning. I think the text as we consider it, is best looked at in reverse order. So I want to challenge us, because this is a very simple story, to begin at the back, which serves as the real foundation of the text, and then work our way back to front. So considering verse 41, the end of the story, they were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I want to give us this morning four big ideas that connect Jesus' deity, who he says he is, 
with our fear in the face of life's uncertainties. For simple and, I hope, sticky ideas that help frame this story as an encouragement to our souls. And number, idea number one is this. Jesus is greater than our fears. Jesus is greater than our fears. This is the end of the story, and in Mark's gospel, this is the main point. I don't want us to lose sight of this. This is the main point of the text that Jesus, in calming this storm, says, I am God. The disciples, up to this point, had been fearful of their circumstances, and notice Mark's play on words. They were afraid of the storm, and now their fear is directed at Jesus. Why? Because Jesus showed himself greater than that which was causing them fear. Three times in the text, we have this repetition. There was a great storm. Jesus' action produced a great calm, which led to, in the disciples, great fear. The result of the text is a terrifying awe of the greatness of Jesus. And perhaps you've heard pastors like myself attempt to reframe fear in light of this reverential awe, like the feeling uh, you have when you stand and look over the great, uh, great uh, Grand Canyon. This reverential awe. In the text here, that doesn't seem to be the point. The point seems to be they were scared. They were really scared. Jesus just did something that their minds could not comprehend. And this caused them panic. This seems to be the common refrain of those who meet Jesus. Notice these texts. In Mark 5, 15, after Jesus has just cast a demon out of a man possessed into a group of pigs, the people came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion of demons in him, sitting there clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Mark 6, 49 and 50. When they saw Jesus walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him, and they were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And what do we know if someone has to tell you to not be afraid? What do we know about you? You're afraid, right? This is the angel's typical language. Don't be afraid because you see an angel and you get scared. So he says, don't be afraid. Peter said to Jesus in Mark 9, Rabbi, this is the transfiguration scene, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Or Mark 16, post-resurrection, verse 8. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You get a sense of the greatness of Jesus by watching people's responses to him. The most common responses to Jesus are fear and falling down. 
Fear, your body trembles. He shows himself greater than all things. He is Lord over nature, disease, demons, and even death. The things that sin had brought into the world, he is now crushing. And because of this, his deity evokes fear in those around him. And what people do with the fear differs. Some know him as God, and they allow this greater than, the fact that Jesus is greater than all things, including nature itself, to drive them to acknowledge you are the Son of God. Incidentally, this in the early pages of the book of Mark is most often the word of the demons. Mark 3, 11 and 12 and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. This is what Jesus is driving at, that people would know and affirm, You are the Son of God. The demons do it in Mark chapter 3. It takes until Mark chapter 8 before we get a clear profession of this from one of the disciples. In Mark eight twenty-seven. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged him to tell no one about him. So we see this progressive growing from the demonic realm who recognizes Jesus as the Christ to fumbling and bumbling Peter by Mark 8, this growing understanding that Jesus is greater than all things. Back up two verses further. What leads them to see that Jesus is greater than all things, than all things that cause us fear? Verse 39. He awoke... And rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Why are people able to see that Jesus is greater than our fears? Because this this passage shows us that idea number two Jesus is in control of our fears. Because Jesus is greater than our fears, he is also in control. He is sovereign over the things that cause us fear. He can, in the face of this storm, stand and simply declare, Peace, be still. And there is a great calm. It says in the text, Mark, he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the waves. Who does that? Who has the power to say to the wind and the waves, hush it? I don't even know that I have that power in my very home. Right? Doesn't seem to work. But he stands and rebukes, calls down the wind and the waves. We see this same language used in Mark 1. 
Jesus rebuked, this is a demon-possessed man, rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out in a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed and they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? Jesus rebukes the demon and it comes out. Or in almost comedic fashion in Mark 8, 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said to them plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. Notice we've got the same wording here used. Jesus rebuking a demon-possessed man. Peter, in classic Peter fashion, overstepping his bounds, calling down Jesus, rebukes him. Jesus spins it on Peter and rebukes him. Get behind me, Satan. This language is the language that's picked up in this text and used of what Jesus does to the storm. What Jesus does to the storm. This is probably most beautifully captured, in my opinion, in the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you're familiar with uh, that text, which if you're not and you're a parent, you need to be. We'll buy you one. Read it to your kids. Uh, It's a brilliant retelling of these essential themes of the gospel, and it's profound even for adults. And in there, the author says, uh, in response to Jesus saying, peace be still, Uh, She says that the wind and the waves recognized Jesus' voice because it was the very voice that had created them in the first place. So they had no choice but to obey because this was the very voice of the one that had called them into existence in the first place. And so they hush. This is what God does. Psalm 65, 5 and 8, 5 through 8. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the furthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring seas, the roaring of waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. Psalm 89, 8 through 9. O Lord God of the heavens, who is as mighty as you, O Lord? With your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 106, 9 through 12. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. He led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe, and he redeemed them from the power of the enemy. The waters covered their adversaries, not one of them was left. Then they believed his words, and they sang his praise. This is who God is. He is sovereign over all things. He is in control of all things. And when he wants the storm to stop, it must stop. When he wants the storm to stop, it must stop. 
this need not mean, and please hear this, that we have clear promises from the Lord that the storm will stop in your life at the point that you desire the storm to stop. This need not mean even that the storm will stop this side of eternity in every case. But it does mean that if God wants it to stop, it will, in fact, in fact, it must stop. And so, if the storm continues, we know that this is at God's hand. He is not mindlessly passive in heaven, ignoring our plight, but rather, if the storms of life continue to rage, and they will, this is at the bidding of the sovereign hand of God. When he wants it to stop, it will stop. And so, what hope do we have? If the hope is not that when I want my storm to stop, it stops, the hope is not that the scene of Mark 4 plays out in every case, but rather that God is sovereign over all things and he is in control and when he wants it to stop, it will stop. Verse 37. A great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him saying, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? This thing quickly brings back memories of the story of Jonah, right? We see this picture of a great storm arising throughout the scripture, the sea being a place of death and destruction. It's where the monsters live. It's where destruction happens. And here we have uh, boats on the lake, high winds on the sea still to this day that can quickly toss a boat around like a kid's toy. And this must have been a fierce storm for fishermen to say, we're scared to death. We're going to die. And in contrast to their fear, the boat already beginning to, f- to fill with water, we see Jesus asleep. Asleep in the stern. There's no explanation in the text given for why. See, weary from the labors of his teaching. We don't see clear explanation why, but we can assume here in the text that he is asleep as a visible and clear reminder to the disciples that he has all things under control. In fact, throughout the scriptures, we see sleep as a sign of faith and trust in God. Sleep is a sign of faith and trust in God. Psalm 3, 5, and 6. I lay down and slept, and I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid for many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Psalm 4, 8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So the psalmist can say, I lie down and rest, even though I have thousands of enemies, because I know you've got this. And to the God incarnate Jesus, 
The disciples go and they go to wake him in the text and they ask question. Do you not care that we are perishing? This is more seen as an accusation, right? Is it no concern? Don't you care that we are perishing? Now you've got to ask the question, like what were the disciples' expectations when they did this? Were they just warning Jesus? Hey bro, we're all about to die. Like get in the tornado position right? Head between your legs because it's going down. Or were they expecting him to do what he did, which is to calm the storm? Clearly, we see from their amazement at what Jesus did that even if they had these lingering hopes that he would calm the storm, they really had no expectation that he was going to wake up and rebuke the wind and the waves, and it was all going to be calm. And this serves for us as the picture of how we most often see Jesus in the face of our fears, right? It's the classic story. Jesus is on board, but he's clearly asleep at the wheel. Isn't this how you feel if you put words to your fears? Jesus, God, I know you're there. No, you're out there. I'm not denying that you exist, but clearly you've just forgotten me. Don't you see the wind and the waves? The boat's starting to fill up, God. Things look really, really bad. Why are you just asleep? David Paulison, in one of his writings on the heart, contrasts this emotion that we most often feel and what he calls the anti-Psalm 23. He holds this up against the real Psalm 23 and writes the anti-Psalm, the contrasting emotion that we most often feel in the face of life circumstances. And I want to read it to you and see if it resonates with your heart this morning. He writes, I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist I want to do what I want, when I want, and how I want, but life's so confusing. Why don't things ever really work? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I feel the big hurt, the final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. My friends, are my friends really my friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much all about me. Sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? 
Will I be alone forever, homeless, free-falling, and devoid? Hell is for other people, and I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death, and then I die. Pallison holds that psalm in contrast to the real Psalm 23. Hear this and see if you can taste the difference. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do a little internal inventory this morning. Which of those is more true of your life on a day-to-day basis? Do you live life in the anti-psalm or in the psalm? Which is the more dominating reality on your mind and on your affections, that of fear or that of faith? We must consider this morning how true it is that a life marked by fearful anxiety is an affront to a holy God. I mean, consider how you would feel if your spouse came to you and said, I just don't trust you. I don't trust you. Today when you go to work, when you go out and do whatever you do, you have a track record that says, I can't trust you. Therefore, fear and worry are going to dominate my emotions. As a husband, you would feel personally attacked, right? What is it about my character that means my wife can't trust me? Now, parallel that exactly to your experience with God. What does it say about our trust in God when we live lives dominated by fear? What do the, as Jerry Bridges says, the respectable sins of fear and worry say about who we really believe God to be? These aren't just petty nuisances that good Christians kind of struggle with when the bad Christians really struggle with the big sins. Worry, fear, and anxiety are big sins. They're big sins because they are a personal affront to a holy God. And so if this morning you find that the voice of fear is louder than the voice of faith, let me encourage you with the words of Paul that you would cast all your anxieties on him knowing that he cares for you that you would throw the full weight of your fear upon him, knowing that he cares for you. This is for us the third big idea of the text. Jesus is greater 
than our fears. He is in control of our fears. And, praise God, he is in the midst of our fears. He is in the storm with you. And therefore, this morning, you can cast the full weight of your anxiety, your fear, upon him, knowing that he cares for you. And then lastly, and I think fascinatingly interesting, is how this story begins. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. Now Mark 1 has already told us that Jesus says, I came to preach in other towns also. So I'm going to do some work here, and then I'm going to bounce to this other place, and then I'm going to bounce to this other place. But I want you to see who initiated the travel. This was not the disciples saying, Jesus, let's go, but rather, Jesus, with full knowledge that the storm was going to come, says, let's get in the boat. Jesus, with full knowledge of the storm, says, let's get in the boat, let's go to the other side, and he does it. Notice, I mean, Mark makes this point, just as he was. He doesn't change his clothes. He doesn't do anything. He's like, now's the time. Let's go. Knowing all the while, if God is sovereign, and he is, that Jesus knew the storm was going to come, he told the disciples to get in the boat. Why? Because I did number four. Jesus exposes our fears. Jesus exposes our fears. He knew that the storm was going to come, and he put the disciples in the boat to call out their lack of faith. And so this morning, if you find yourselves driven by an uncontrolled sense of fear in the face of life's circumstances, let me ask you what I think Jesus would ask in light of this text. What does that fear say about what you worship? What does that fear say about what you worship? Because in reality, there are no such thing as irrational fears. While they may seem irrational and overwhelming to you if you step back and think about them, all of our fears expose something about what we worship. Take, for example, um, parents with teenage children. An overwhelming sense of fear, the but whatabouts that cloud parenting teenagers can often be used by God to expose that in fact you worship your kids. That something about being in control and being in charge and looking like you have it all together and you're a perfect parent is actually on the throne of worship in your life. It exposes something about your heart. And this is good news from a gracious God, that he would be so kind as to give us things like fears as check engine lights for the worship of our hearts. That we would see 
that even when he, notice in Psalm 23, what? He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. We have no reason to fear because he is with us. So even when he leads us into the valley of the shadow of death, even when he leads us into a boat where he knows there's a storm coming, it doesn't catch him off guard. This is a good gift from a gracious God because it exposes the things in our hearts that we worship. A contrast for us, faith in God with fear of our circumstances. And we are challenged by the words of 1 John this morning so that we have come to know to believe that the Son has for us the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in the world. But there is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And don't use this text this morning to further beat yourself up by the fact that you are fearful, but rather let it highlight the overwhelming beauty of the love of God shown in Christ. That, as the text says, we need to be constantly reminded of the gospel, of the great love of Christ, that the work has already been done. Please consider this this morning. Satan has already been defeated. It's done. The stinger of sin has already been plucked by the cross of Christ. It is but a stingerless wasp that you can swat away with no fear. And the sting of death, while fleeting, temporary, and painful now, has been forever conquered. There is an empty tomb. So what do you have to fear? Satan's done. Sin is done. Death is done. The victory has been declared. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he was serious. So of all people, we should have hope this morning, right? We don't have to live crushed under the weight of our fears. We can swat them away by the power of the love of Christ. Now, if you are here and you are not in Christ, you have much to fear. You have much to fear. The judgment of God is rightly targeted towards your sin. You are the just recipient of the full weight of the wrath of God. And this morning, if you do not know Christ, if you stand apart for him, from him, death is your final fate. You will die not only physically, but you will die spiritually forever separated from the love of Christ. This morning, you need to flee to Christ. 
As we come to the table in a few minutes, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, let me encourage you to pass on this table and come and talk to one of the pastors. There'll be two in the front and one in the back. We would love to talk to you about what it means to know Christ. For those of you that are in Christ, let me remind you of the beauty of this celebration, the Lord's table. As just a few chapters later, Jesus is going to celebrate this meal with his disciples. And after they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank all of it. And he said to them, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This morning, we who are in Christ are going to be invited to the table. And as you come to the Lord's table, you're going to take a piece of bread broken and a cup. And this morning, as you celebrate the death and resurrection of the Lord with your friends, your family, those that you're seated around, I want you to be reminded as you look at the broken bread and the cup that the work is finished. And let the finished work of Christ expose the fears in your heart. Repent of those as sin and flee to Jesus this day. Spend some time with those that you love praying perhaps talking about the fears that are looming in your heart. Profess faith in Christ this day. Take the elements reverentially wherever you are. If you want to go out in the hall and pray, you're more than welcome to do that or outside. And then we'll come back together and sing to the one who has finished the work, thus casting out our fear. Let's pray. Father, this morning... we do not take lightly the fact that you are inviting us to your table. We are reminded by this beautiful meal that you celebrated with your disciples and that you enacted for us to continue, that the work is done. The cross is not a future event, the resurrection is not a future event, but rather it has fully and finally been finished. God, forgive us for the host of ways that we undermine you by our worries and fears. For the ways that our lips may declare you to be God on Sunday in a church gathering, but our thoughts, our conversations, what keeps us awake at night, is perhaps a better reflection of what we feel about you. God, I pray that in those places, you would show yourself to be strong this day. That we would profess you as God as readily and as clearly in our thoughts and in our worries as we do in our songs knowing that you are in control of all things and it may just be that you are leading us into those things 
to expose our lack of worship of you. And so would you use this morning to once again remind us of the beauty of the cross of Christ, the reality of the empty tomb, and would you crush the fear that looms in our hearts? We ask it for the sake of Christ. Amen.